Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast less fiscally responsible than Dinamo Zagreb. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I spent the last three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Giving Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. Today we'll be looking at the two managers at either end of the Premier League table, Chris Wilder and Pep Guardiola, or rather that were there prior to Chris Wilder passing ways with the Blades last week, which we'll get into shortly. As always, timestamps are in the description, and starting us off is something our listeners outside the UK might not be too familiar with, the football index scandal. Yeah, so this has been uh, one that has kind of rocked the betting world, the football world. A lot of people had a lot of money in this and have lost it. Um, but as you mentioned there, this is something that is quite specialised to the UK. So I think a good place to start off with might be to just sort of delve into what Football Index is. Um, and Football Index is basically an online gambling platform that styled itself as the stock market of football. Um, the way it worked was that punters could buy and sell shares in professional footballers, earning dividend payments depending on the player's performance, uh, and also owning these shares could also go up or down in price, uh, reflected by the player's performance. Um, it was definitely a really interesting thing. I saw it. It looked very intriguing when it's been advertised over the last few years. Uh, and I think it appealed to a lot of people because it was kind of like an alternative to traditional sports betting. Instead of gambling on one team or another winning by a certain score, it was a system that I guess the idea was that it ostensibly rewarded knowledge of the game as a guarantee, in as much that you know you can bet on United to win a game, but there might be an upset. Whereas betting that Bruno Fernandez is going to have a good season is, I guess, quote unquote, safer or more reliable. Yeah, definitely, and I think it um it kind of appealed to me, for example, as as a uh, a watcher of football, someone who enjoys football, just because I spend a lot of time thinking about young players that are coming up and. You know, it definitely rewards, or in theory, rewarded play, um, people who knew a little bit more about the youth level of football, and you know, could see younger players that were going to maybe have a breakout season, and you know, their stock was going to rise within the club, with internationally, things like that. So, yeah, it's um, I, I could definitely see, you know, that that was the appeal for sure. Yeah, in theory, definitely the young players, because obviously you could buy your already good players like your Bruno Fernandes and your Kevin Durant, but the real money to be made would have been going for these young players. Or if you're someone who's really into um, underlying statistics, for example, you might take pride in going, ah, well, you know, some people are really surprised that Dominic Calvert-Lewin's doing well this season, but if you looked at the underlying, so it definitely appealed to people like that. Um, there was one person who spoke to the BBC about it in the aftermath of all this, said, oh, I've really been into football the whole time, but traditional football betting never really interested me. The stock market element of football index was what, what, what did it. It combined my interest in analysing the game with betting on football. Um, so you just, just again, to frame it for our listeners who don't live in the UK or, or aren't in uh, a major city or something, this has just been so, so massive. Just for us who live in London, just walking around London, it's if you were out and about, it's difficult to not see an advert for Football Index. It's on taxis, it's on the underground, it's all over the place. Of course, it's on TV as well. Um, and it's even on several different football clubs' shirts. Bristol Rovers, Nottingham Forest and QPR all have had them as a shirt sponsor. Um, Bristol Rovers went with a different sponsor last season. And Nottingham Forest and QPR had Football Index right up until last week when this all came out and have since dropped them as a, as a sponsor. Um, they also were partnered with several trusted figures in the football community. Obviously, John Motson, who uh, many people know as the voice of football was unveiled in 2018 as the voice of football index uh, and experts such as Gillen Balag and Raphael Honigstein joined as ambassadors several different um, websites and publications like TalkSport the Athletic all also partnered with it advertised it so it was something that was endorsed and legitimized you could say massively by this involvement with all these figures that we know and everyone sort of looked at it and you know so far from how we've described it 
probably sounds pretty enticing if you, if you <laughs> fancy yourself someone who knows a lot about the game. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's so enticing just because um, the way that their kind of advertising model worked was that they'd kind of showcase young players that had broken through and they'd say like, well, if you'd invested here, you mm. know, it's it's tripled in the last year or so. I remember looking at, seeing an advert for, I think it was someone like Callum Hudson-Odoi. And, you know, he, he was by no means a player that was hidden from the football community. Everyone was pretty confident that he was going to be a really good player. And, you know, I think the advert said something like, since rejecting his offer from Bayern Munich, he's he's tripled in value, something like that. So, you know, already being offered a contract by Bayern Munich means that, you know, he's well considered within the community, but he's still got triple the value in, in like the year or so after that because he was getting more game time for Chelsea. So I remember looking at that and thinking like, oh, I kind of wish I had invested in him because, you know, it's, it's, it was clear to me that he was going to be a bigger player than he was at the time and I would have made money from it. So definitely it was ubiquitous. It was all over and it was enticing, as you say. Also, just just a quick aside before we go into sort of where things went downhill. What a great player Callum Hudson Odoi is as an advertisement, don't you think? Like he's the perfect entry level like thing to advertise to casuals because he's like an obvious like good young player. If they'd said someone like Tariq yeah, Lamptey yeah, three yeah. years back, he would have been like no way. <laughs> and they said like Eddie Hazard. <laughs> Callum Hudson Odoi is like maybe the best player I can think of to do that. Like him or maybe Phil Foden would be another really obvious one. But them just being like, oh, do you think this player could be good? You're smart if you think that. Yeah, he, he, he's the real gateway. Um, <laughs> the gateway drug of football investment, footballers. <laughs> um, fortunately, I actually didn't invest, not for any reason other than I think I didn't really get round to it. I didn't understand how it worked, but I mean, I'm glad that I took the time to to realise that I didn't know how it worked because clearly a lot of people didn't know how it worked. Yeah, and I think this is the problem, is that a lot of people have put money into it that didn't really understand how the system worked. And the system advertised itself very much as the stock market of football. That's still in their Twitter header, it's still in their Twitter bio, it's in their adverts. They actually got into a little bit of trouble with the UK advertising board uh, for advertising themselves in a magazine as a, an actual stock market, because basically it's, it's very, very different to that. Um, and something has changed recently, and this is what the, the story is about. And this is a couple of weeks ago, the business suddenly announced out of the blue a change in the way that new shares would be issued, as well as a reduction in the dividend payout that we that we mentioned earlier. And um, previously, when you had players that could pay out dividends, the maximum dividend payout per share was thirty three p. Overnight, this got reduced to six p, which is an eighty two percent slash out of the blue. So, if you've got thousands and thousands of shares and your shares and you're expecting x amount of dividend payments, this is just such a massive, massive, massive uh, slash to your portfolio. As it stands, Football Index risks becoming the biggest failure numerically in UK gambling history. Um, some punters have seen their portfolios drop all the way up to 90%, and it's suggested that the minimum loss for most punters is going to be around 50%. Um, Football Index came out, and it was quite interesting because what we have now is another one of those situations where one story is being told, but it doesn't exactly line up with the story that we've seen. Um, Football Index have come out and said that they, this is because they were trying to protect the health of the company, and long term it made more financial sense for them to reduced these dividend payouts. They also slashed the share price of a lot of key players. Um, but for the last few months, they've been putting out statements that they're in great shape. Obviously, because of COVID, loads of companies have fallen on hard times, seen reduced income. But Football Index had been making a real point to sort of come out and say, no, 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 the coffers are still full. We've still got lots of cash. The founder of the company, Adam Cole, even predicted in June of last year, so we were like three, four months into COVID at that point, that based on how the company was doing, in two years' time, the company would be 10 times bigger. So it's, it's getting now to something where 
this is going to go just just beyond uh, a bit of ill advice. This could be fraud. <laughs> and the problem, basically, at its root, you talked about there how you know you didn't get into it because you hadn't really figured out how it worked. And that's you know that's just the smart play, really, because the problem here basically was that they'd advertise themselves as a stock market and made it look like a stock market, and you buy shares and sell shares, etc., etc. But the problem basically with this was that it was a stock market based around imaginary commodities. There was nothing that gave the shares you held underlying value, unlike the real stock market where if you buy Apple shares, you do actually literally have a percentage of Apple as a company. When you bought shares in Harry Kane or Bruno Fernandes or Kevin De Bruyne, you weren't actually buying a percentage of Harry Kane. So unlike the real stock market, there was nothing real tied to it. And as a result, Football Index were able to sort of just turn around and go, well, on Monday, we thought that Bruno Fernandes was worth £7.23. And just three days later, he's worth £1.08, which is what they did uh, when this all happened on on the 6th of March. Um, Because, you know, there was nothing to say they couldn't do it. Um, I think a lot of people really misunderstood, largely because of the language used, but just what what was happening when they were buying shares. They were effectively placing bets. Um, And part of me, there is a part of me, the non-sympathetic part of my brain that is like, well, I mean, if you start throwing loads and loads of your money in something without understanding how it works, you can't really be that upset when you get swindled. There was someone who came out, one of the people who had um, been really hardly hit from the, the whole scandal, said he had £20,000 in it and he saw it as a savings account. And my first thought was, like, don't ever look at a betting account as a savings account, man. But at the same time, there is a part of me that looks at it and thinks, you know, this has been a really well-executed scam, in a sense. I don't know if they always intended it to be a scam, but they've managed to get themselves legitimised by, obviously, the actual UK Gambling Commission. But all these trusted figures in football, football clubs, they've managed to sort of advertise to a certain way. They got called out for one advert back in 2019, but other than that, the fact that they're still allowed to call themselves the football stock market, very openly, and having a challenge on that, it's not that surprising that some people have have been convinced that's how it works. For sure, but I think um, for, from my personal perspective, I feel like this clearly was not their game plan, their business plan. Um, you know, it wasn't part of their business model to, to have this kind of, of dive in, in player prices. Uh, I don't think they intended last year in June, for example, to introduce this policy change. And they definitely didn't want this fallout that they're receiving. They didn't want to lose the sponsorship of, of you know, clubs like QPR, things like that. Um, and... You know, it, it comes at a time when um, its parent club, uh, Bet Index Limited, has announced that it has entered administration. Um, so, you know, I, I really see this as as them pivoting to try and save themselves at the cost of everyone else. And personally, my heart really does go out to people who've invested hundreds, even thousands of pounds in, in this platform, because when an entire marketing department of a big company is... Like gearing towards making you believe a certain thing. I'm not going to blame someone for thinking that thing. Um, you know, I, I really feel for these people that that will have lost a significant amount of of their like wealth, their cash, um, because a company has decided to act unbelievably selfishly and fraudulently, as I think we, we can agree. Yeah, I, I do agree that they have. And uh, there's, see, this is what I'm going to say. There's a part of my brain that agrees with what you're saying. But there's also a part of my brain that, you know, if someone came up to me and said, listen, man, I've got a surefire thing. If you give me a hundred quid right now, I can turn it into a thousand pounds by the end of the week. Obviously, the 
increases weren't that drastic. But I wouldn't just go, oh yeah, that sounds like a good deal. I'd meticulously research what he what his whole idea was before I started putting in loads of money. So the, the part of me that goes, hmm, these people who've put in £20,000 and still described it as like, there was one guy, I think it was actually the same guy who lost the £20,000 who was like, oh, well, you know, it was really fun and they just got some poor management. So if they get new management, I'll be, I'll be getting straight back in it. And I was like... Some people can't do, be helped. No. <laughs> some, some, some people, if you're, if you're holding open your wallet, you can't be that surprised when someone nips their hand and nicks a 20 out. It's, uh, look, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Like, it's, I mean, it's not something I invested in. I think probably part of the reason I didn't invest in it was just laziness. Like, I kind of knew that I wanted to take the time and look at it. But also, you know, I, I, no, I, I, I disagree with you fundamentally. I think, I think that it's it's been handled really badly. No one could have predicted this coming. Yes, it's hard because, as you say, like the assets that they're actually holding are completely intangible. They hold no shares in these players. But you just see, it, because it's so ubiquitous and because it was endorsed by so many people, it has this assumed legitimacy, which is like a, you know, obviously... A, a key marker of something fraudulent is that you know they work on their reputation more than anything um but yeah i my heart goes out to them for sure yeah I, i'm i'm not rubbing my hands with glee at anyone that's been hit really hard by this especially at the moment where you know money's hard to come by for everyone really so so you know definitely feel sorry for them but <laughs> that was just a part of me and more for some people than other the people who just like enjoyed it and had a bit of fun and put a bit of quid in and have lost it that kind of sucks the people who genuinely thought it was like a long-term money-making scheme there's, I'm just like, really? But it's all on. long-term ideas. It's like, wow, if I invest in this player who's 17 now, he's just signed a contract with, let's say, Arsenal FC. I think he's predicting, um, he, he's going to go on and do big things. I've been watching the youth leagues. I, I, I'm going to put in, you're not expecting to get that return in a month. You're expecting to get that return in five years. And you're no, expecting I, I that. You know, 20 times the, the value. So it, it's geared towards long-term investment, which is why people have been putting in money as long-term investments. I, I understand that. That's how it marketed itself. And incidentally, actually, I think the concept isn't that bad. And I think one of the reasons we'll go into why it failed, but one of the things that I'm almost certain we'll see in like two years time when the, the furore around this particular scandal has died down is I bet we'll see some of the other big companies do their own version of it once football index falls. I bet we'll see like a William Hill index and a, and a Betfair. Maybe there is one already that I just don't know about, but I, I would be very surprised if we don't see like mimics coming out in the next few years with companies that actually do have the capital to back it. Um, yeah, agreed, and 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 which provide you know, guarantees for actual assets, um, for sure, completely. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. But I think so. Just looking at it, um, you mentioned just a little bit before we got into whether or not we should feel sorry for the people. Um, you, you sort of said, I don't think the company would have planned this, and I don't think they would have planned it long term. But a lot of people have looked at this. A few more of the keen eye people who've been looking at a couple of documents that have come out, a couple of statements that have come out, and suggested that it could be the case that the company did deliberately slash the prices and tank the prices, not in order to save the business per se. I mean, you could say in a roundabout way this is to save the business, but more so to attract new punters. Um, CEO Mike Bohan released a statement saying, we've set the objective for our primary market maker to trial a bottom-up approach to liquidity that I believe will add some confidence to traders and encourage more users to come on board. So bottom-up approach to liquidity just means making it a bit cheaper so people can buy in quite a little bit easier. Um, Sure. And that is clearly what happened by, you know, reducing, for example, Fernandez from seven odd pounds to, to around one pound. Um, there's also been the allegation that money used to pay users dividends was coming from other users. Um, the company obviously had been stating for ages that this wasn't the case. They said new deposits are not linked to payouts because that is the 
dictionary definition of a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> the screenshots <laughs> yeah. of the customer service email have done the rounds following the crash of the business. And the email states that Football Index has, contained, uh, has sustained consistent and substantial losses due to low deposit levels, uh, due to low deposit levels which have, compl- which have depleted their cash reserves. So, I mean, what is that saying if that's not saying that they, the cash they were using to pay dividends was also the cash that they were getting in from the users? <laughs> They've admitted that to being a Ponzi scheme. It does kind of seem to suggest that. And also, you know, the, the whole fact that users are currently unable to withdraw any funds from their accounts. So, mm. uh, it's yeah, it's definitely leaning towards, um, you know, scam. Yeah. The, the best place to end it, I think, would be to look, and, you know, look at what happens now. Um, the Football Index platform has been suspended uh, on the 11th of March. The gambling license has been suspended as well by the UK Gambling Commission, which, as you mentioned just there, means users have had their money trapped in the platform. The question now that a lot of people are asking is, how did the Gambling Commission allow this? Why did a company like Football Index receive a gambling license to begin with? I mean, we were just speaking there about you know whether or not we should feel sorry for people for not reading the fine print. And I think, you know depending on how nice or nasty a person you are, which I think is the duality of us as hosts (laughs) you you can (laughs) take either stance i I think one stance that pretty much everyone would agree with is that the one organization that should be reading the fine print is the gambling commission well yeah that's that's probably very true i mean um it's um it's weird because i mean the stock market is not under the gambling commission in the slightest um Mm. so i think probably the fact that they had a license from the gambling commission means that it's literally defining itself as gambling. You're taking big risks. You're not investing your money. It's not, as, as we've kind of, you've said, like it's not a long-term portfolio. It's gambling. Um, so, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's just betting that's been dressed up in a clever way to appeal to people in a certain way. And it's, it's succeeded massively in that. And it's succeeded, I think, in even, you know, convincing the body that's supposed to regulate them that that's what they do. So so that's really impressive. Um, I just want to end on, on this point, which is just a really good quote I read. A lot of MPs have been getting involved now because obviously, as we discussed with um, the uh, shirt sponsorship and betting that we talked about a few weeks ago, obviously the UK government oversees gambling and... and, and um, you know, all the directives that come from the Gambling Commission have come from the government in some form. So a few MPs have been getting involved saying it should be discussed in Parliament. One Labour MP, Carolyn Harris, said of the Gambling Commission uh, and their inability to do it, this is exploitation, plain and simple. The Gambling Commission's actions now are very much bolting gate after horse bolted. Unacceptable, unprofessional, unbelievable. There you go. It's it's quite a good uh, quote. Yeah, and I guess passing thoughts from me is just... um pitch a question to you do you think that this is another example we talked about kind of the problems with gambling and the way that gambling has pivoted towards targeting younger audiences is this another example of gambling companies being you know more cunning and as you say like dressing up in different ways and essentially like hoodwinking people and hooking people into spending more money yeah, yeah, definitely like, I do. They, and I think, ironically enough, this may end up being a real landmark point when the eventual uh, re-evaluation of the Gambling Act comes around. I bet this will be one of the key talking points. Agreed, yeah. I would not be surprised. Um, well, commiserations to any listeners who, who had money invested. Um, and, yeah, you got to hope that that guy who had 20 grand in it, that wasn't his only 20 grand. <laughs> you'd hope so. You'd, you'd, re- you'd really hope it wasn't. Um Shall we move into guessing game? You've got one for me this week. I do indeed. And I'm quite looking forward to this one. Uh, we're going to see how you do. Um, <laughs> I hope this one's easier than your last one. <laughs> um, well, again, we're, we're going to see how you do. 
Um, so this player um, has the most goals for one Premier League club in the history of the Premier League. Okay. So not the most goals, the most goals for one club. In 2014, he became the first Premier League player to reach over 10 million followers on Twitter. And he has played with the likes of Gerard Piquet, Theo Walcott, Robin Van Persie, and Tim Howard, all at club level. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly who this is, by the way. I think it's cute. <laughs> I think it's really cute you thought you could sneak this one past me. <laughs> uh, well, Cam, you'll have to wait till you get to uh, guess who you think that might be. We're going to move on for now and we will come back to it later in the episode. I wish you the best of luck. Um, let's move on and talk about Chris Wilder, who has, in the last week or two, left Sheffield United. Yeah, and that is a- another very, very weird one. Um, obviously, they are at the bottom of the table and they're heavy, heavy favourites to go down. I think it would take nothing short of a miracle to keep them up. I think they're not only going to go down, they are going to be bottom of the table at the end of it. Um, but I think most people, including the players, it seems, from you know the conversation that came out after their, their match against Leicester that we'll talk about in a second, was that Chris Wilder was going to stay on, he was going to stay in charge of the club, and when they were back in the championship, he was going to work to get them promoted again. Because, of course, you know, Wilder's no stranger to the championship. He managed their uh, last se- uh, sorry, season before last. He obviously played there a little bit as a player. He's the one who got them promoted there in the first place. He also was the one who got them promoted to their from League One. So he is, you know, really well-versed in navigating the championship, navigating these slightly tougher leagues when they're a bit more gritty, as everyone says, you know, championship's the hardest, hardest league in the world. Um... And I think, you know, he really has pedigree in in slogging through those levels. When he took over Sheffield United five years ago, the club had just finished 11th place in League One. The following year, he turned it around, they earned 100 points and, and won the league. And then only two years later, he'd gained promotion to the Premier League from the Championship. Um, so I think a lot of people initially were scratching heads. I saw a lot of different pundits going out and going, hey, this is a very weird one. Um, but it turns out that this departure was not because the club sacked Chris Wilder, but instead because he walked. Um, reportedly, he was unhappy with what he considered to be a lack of support um, and an acceptance of relegation by the owners who were sort of... They'd, gone well we're going to go down you know no need to sign anyone in January um and he thought they should have made more of a committed effort to stay up he thought he should have had more support in the window he wanted to sign a centre-back and a and a midfielder to sort of aid their last gasp fight but apparently this wasn't this wasn't going to happen no and it's um it's tricky just because you know obviously transparency is becoming more of a thing as you know the world of social media and just the the amount of cover that Premier League clubs get we do see a little bit more of the inner workings of these clubs, but it's always difficult to work out who sanctions signings. So, um, you know, for example, the, the, the Sheffield's like um, top signing that they made in the summer, which was for Rian Brewster, the Liverpool um, player. It's hard to tell whether or not that's a signing that Chris Wilder wanted or it's one that the club decided to, to buy. Um, but, you know, when you look at something like that, you think, well, he did get... Um, you know, he did get the support that he maybe wanted because, you know, they broke the bank to sign a new striker, which is what they were lacking, which is goals up front. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And and I think I'll, I'll get into that in a minute, just because I think there's a lot lot to be said about the the validity of his claim that he wasn't supported. But I think it is just, it's a very weird, I, I feel like the owners of Sheffield United 
maybe didn't do enough to get him to stay. Maybe they really should have gone, we'll keep doing anything to keep him, because I think he was such an important figure for that club. Unsurprisingly, because he changed their fortunes so much as a club. But I think you could even see that when they had their game against Leicester over the weekend. Um, it, the players were just... They all looked like they just heard someone had died. They looked absolutely in shell shock. They lost 5-0, but Billy Sharp, the club captain, who's a local lad, came out and he said, it was like 11 men against 11 boys. It was our worst performance in the five years I've been at the club. It could have been nine. And, you know, the Sheffield did just look dreadful. It's not the first time they've looked dreadful this season, but it was one of the most dreadful performances they had. And it's difficult to entirely blame the players for that because they didn't have a lot to be excited about this season. Already they, they had got one of the worst starts to the Premier League. A lot of people thought early on they were going to equal that derby record. And the only thing they had going for them was, okay, look, we're going to have our manager. We're going to go down. He knows how to get us back up. We can sort of ride that wave and come back stronger than before. Now they haven't even got that to hold on to. And, and it could just continue to go worse and worse for them till the end of the season. It might be an irreparable loss. It could well be. And um, yeah, it's interesting that you... I was also looking at the quotes from Billy Sharp and I just found quite strange the way he seemed to phrase it which was to suggest that they've kind of just massively regressed as a club in the last you know season so he kind of said um, when the gaffer came in we were like this and we became a very good team now we've become a not very good team and we need to get together and find something for the fans so he's kind of suggesting to me at least that They've gone back to being the the team that they were before Wilder took over. So that seems to me like a complete loss of momentum from the players' perspectives. Mm. Yeah, and you can see why they would feel that way. Their fearless leader, who's who's done such crazy things for them, an amazing you know promote not back to back promotions, but promotions within very, very short time of each other, and then finishing ninth in the Premier League, is just such an exceptional run for Sheffield. And I think it's it's ironic. Because Sheffield, in a sense, are kind of victims of their own success. When they came up last season, I'm, I'm sure you remember, and I'm sure all the listeners remember, every single pundit and every single person commenting on the game, from the most uh, you know, amateur fan to the most professional pundit, was going, Sheffield United will finish 20th. They've come up, they're going to go straight back down. They're basically a League One outfit. They've ended up here through a lot of pluck, a lot of courage, but it's not really going to do them that well. They're going straight back down. And they finished ninth. It was exceptional. And I think most people were kind of at most ambivalent about Sheffield United. Maybe some teams were a bit opportunistic and saw them as a few points and thought, great, we've got Sheffield. By the end of the season, I think pretty much everyone had a little bit of a soft spot for this sort of plucky northern team that had fought against all the odds with really limited resources to to, to finish ninth. So it's kind of a shame. But I feel like if they had had this season that they're having now, last season, and if they just never had that really good season... No one will be talking about it like it's a massive scan, a massive surprise, or a massive disappointment because where they are now is kind of where we all expected them to be last season. Yeah, it's 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 a fair point, definitely. I mean, I think um, I remember a lot of talk about how you know they were going to be really strong at home and they were going to make it really hard for teams on the road to come and, and face them. But apart from that, they were really going to struggle for points. And yeah, to finish ninth was unprecedented and something that I don't think anyone saw coming at all. You're absolutely right. I think um, to try and understand this this departure, you've maybe got to look at it from two different perspectives, one which is the clubs and one which is the manager himself. Um, so from, from the club's perspective, they, I'm sure, will be probably quite upset that he's gone. But based on the, 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 the comments that Chris Wilder's made recently before he walked, they will have recognised that he was not happy. 
Um, you know, I think a, a couple of weeks ago he was casting into doubt, um, you know, his future at the club. So the fact that the club didn't make any promises, any fresh promises to him, didn't try their hardest to keep him, we assume because he left, mm-hmm. maybe means that they didn't think he was worth fighting for. And and maybe it seems like, you know, they they feel like a change in the manager is what's going to come about, bring about change because they need change. They need to to break this trend that they're on. And that's interesting from one perspective, because as you mentioned earlier, and as I fully agree, Chris Wilde is well-versed in the championship. He's well-versed in the lower leagues of um, the English game. And I I believe that Sheffield would have been much more likely to go back up next season from the championship to the Premier League with Chris Wilder as manager rather than without him. The second part is from, I guess, the perspective of the manager, which is Chris Wilder. He's got a great CV. He's taken, uh, you know, a struggling side, League Two side, League One side, sorry, um, got them promoted twice and then finished ninth in um, the Premier League. You know, a feat accomplished. Most recently I can think of is Reading when they finished eighth in their first season in the Premier League in like 2008 um seriously impressive stuff and i wouldn't be surprised if he is kind of thinking to himself it i've outgrown the club the club is not moving on and i am keen to move on and progress my abilities as a manager like i kind of do get it from his perspective obviously sad because you know he's had to say goodbye to his boy club the club he played at and the club that he kind of nurtured and and grew into a premier league side but I I would not say that it is a bad decision for him. I would say it's a, a great decision yet, but I don't think it's necessarily the worst thing in the world for him that he's gone. Yeah, I think just rationally, obviously you never know what happens with these things. Sheffield United might get a fantastic manager in and forget about Chris Wilder, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's going to be the case, but you never know. But I, I think, yeah, rationally, it, it does make a lot of sense for Chris Wilder to have left if this has all played out the way that sort of he said it is. Obviously, it's March now and the window is back in January, so he has had his time to think about it. He's tried to work things out. And, you know, now also, you talked about a CV there. Also on his CV will be, he's you know, he's not, not taking a team down. He's sort of... <laughs> avoided that little, <laughs> little state at the last possible second yeah that's um, true but yeah no I, I do feel sympathy for him because I do think he's given his all into making the club as great as he possibly can and the club has suffered and to a degree this isn't the biggest surprise in the world but I do think also you know they've been really unlucky this season um you know, it's not just just the fact that they formed last season that's made them look that bad this season. Obviously, that does contribute to it. But I, I think they could have very easily finished in like a nice 14th place this season. But they just had so many issues out of their control. Jack O'Connell played pretty much every Premier League game for them last season. I think he played 33 of the 38 possible. He's played two games this season due to injury. Lise Mousse, injured. He's played about two games. Sander Berger got injured in November. One of the most important players. And the only big signing they've made that's worked out, again, injured persistently and not been able to get in there on top of that you've had you know Dean Henderson has gone back to Manchester United Sheffield United's whole thing last season wasn't that they were a really vibrant attacking side it was just that they could stop other teams scoring really effectively and so more often than not the other team was was nil and they either were nil themselves or won so they could get the points and ground them out I think they scored 40 goals all last season and conceded 40 as well um and obviously without Jack O'Connell, that's going to be more difficult. Without Dean Henson, who was the cornerstone of that defensive solidity, it's going to be nigh on impossible. And Aaron Ramsdale, you know, he's, he's an all-right keeper. I think he has been 
unfortunate to come into a side that has been ravaged with injury and has been missing one of their best centre-backs as well as missing their keeper. But he has just not been able to fill the boots that Dean Henderson had. Um, I do think as well, you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, Rian Brewster was a signing that they made that I think, I don't want to say that he's the reason they're going down because that would misrepresent how I feel about the whole situation. I actually feel really sorry for Rian Brewster because he's a young kid who's played half a season in the championship and now has been entrusted with the hopes of like a team that everyone sort of loves. So people are going to be throwing tomatoes at him when, um, <laughs> or, or, or sorry, tomato. I said tomatoes. People are going to throw tomatoes at him tomatoes. all the way back to, yeah, all, all the way back to, um, to, you know, the ground. So, so I do feel really bad for him. But I also just, it'll be interesting to see if we ever find out who it was that sanctioned the Rian Brewster signing. If it was Chris Wilder, that's a really, really bad miscalculation. Um, and I think he has maybe tried to shirk the blame a little bit by scurrying away before they went down. If, however, <laughs> it was the owners who went for that deal and were sort of enamoured by the idea that, oh, you know, he's, he's a Liverpool graduate, oh, he did really well in the championship, then I'm all the more, you know, backing Chris Wilder and think, if that's the, the kind of support you're getting, you're saying, oh, I need this player, that player, and they've decided to, you know, 23 and a half million is it might not sound like a lot of money relative to Premier League clubs because obviously these days transfers are so, so big. You see these 60 million transfers. If you're Man City, you're throwing that sort of stuff around all the time. Chelsea throws stuff all around all the time. 23.5 million is Sheffield's club records, the transfer record. It's such a massive, massive fee for a club like that. If you're a Chelsea or a City or a United or even some of the other clubs like an Everton or, or a West Ham, you can kind of get away with a 23 million pound signing not hitting the highlights. If you're Sheffield United, that player needs to do, that you need a return on that investment, and they've seen zero. He's literally scored no goals. Um, and you know, he, he, when they go down, he was really good in the championship for Swansea it, for in their twenty games there. He might be key in bringing them back up, but they have still gone down. And I can't help but feel like if you took twenty three and a half million, you could either buy just a better striker outright. Or they could have split that money all over the place. I mean, look at Burnley. They've been grinding away in the Premier League for God knows how long. And their record signing is Chris Wood for like £12 million. So in theory, I mean, you know, there's not only one Chris Wood. There's going to be a couple of other similar type of players that could have done a decent job. And, you know, not maybe been the most flashy young Liverpool superstar that they could have got. But would have been cheaper. They could have used the rest of that money to get that left-sided centre-back and that central midfielder. And could have maybe stayed up. Definitely. And um, yeah, you know, whether or not it was sanctioned by Chris Wilder or by the, um, the club's hierarchy, I think we can definitely agree that it was a statement signing. It was a, we're in the Premier League and we're here to stay. Um, and, you know, in that, it shows their ambitions as a club who, you know, clearly they are not, we've talked a little bit about um, recently about how Norwich often, they feel like they get into the Premier League and they're confident that they'll just go back down again. Um, mm. They're almost happy with that as a result. And she Sheffield were not that club at the beginning of the season, at least. Um, but yeah, I mean, to look at their performances last year, obviously everyone was was really impressed by them and their, their tenacity. But to look at their statistics, you know, as you said, 40 goals. They scored 39 goals in the whole of last season. They also okay, conceded... I, I, I gave them an extra one. There you go. I've <laughs> done more than Rio Brewster asked for them. <laughs> well, hey. um, but they also conceded 39 goals their goal difference was zero um, and they only won 14 games and they drew 12 so they won less games than Burnley who finished below them they won less games than Southampton who finished below them and you know that to me signifies two things one they as a club were massively outperforming their expected returns on points 
you know, mm. because it's, it would have been such tight margins. Um, and two, that a lot of their success was not only their momentum, but also their mentality, um, you know, to get the, to grind out those wins and to, to ensure those draws. Um, so, you know, I think it definitely paints a picture of a club um, that, that we think of when we think of um, Sheffield, which is one that, you know, fights as hard as they can for results and, and one which, you know, was very reliant on having a good season and feeling like they were doing having a good season. Uh, as you say, you know, they've had a lot of different stumbling blocks, not the least of which is, is coronavirus. Um, and, you know, the fact that they couldn't make their stadium a fortress. Um, but I think that, you know, you've also got to understand that they, it's just a different season. And not only will they have to do it all over again, which always seems like such a daunting task for these small clubs that manage big heights, like finishing ninth. It also, you know, it will have been an extra challenge for them because clubs now know what to expect from them. We see it all the time when a manager comes out with fresh new ideas. These ideas of like overlapping centre-backs, for example, were so unique to Sheffield and their image of their successful season. But, you know, there's so much tactical research gets done now in the game that clubs will have been working out ways to beat that. And mm. there's only so many times that you can use the same trick and win games. Um, and there are countless examples of that. So, you know, I feel like they, they suffered from their success, not just because of expectations, but also because, you know, clubs then analysed them more, having lost games against them and found new ways to penetrate their defences, found new ways to keep them out. Yeah, 100%. 100% agree with you on both the fact that teams do get wise to like new tactics, but also they get wise to you as a club. I'm sure that loads and loads of managers approach the Sheffield United game on the fixture calendar last season going, well, you know, maybe we can rest this winger or that fullback because it's only going to be Sheffield, so we can afford to rotate if we've got a game coming in midweek only for Sheffield to you know really frustrate them and keep them out all game, whereas now they don't have so much of that element of surprise. I think it's interesting as well that you pointed out mentality there because I do think that's something that Sheffield had in spades. I think it's something they definitely will have lost somewhat without uh, Chris Wilder and definitely something they lost against Leicester um, and I think maybe that points to why Chris Wilder believed that there was a chance they could stay up I mean obviously back in January it was still very very unlikely but you look at a team like Aston Villa last season for example who every rational person thought was going down for sure and they managed at the 11th hour to pull out the bag similarly West Ham although I would say they were a less extreme example than Villa but you know everyone looked at these teams and thought they're going to go down and they fought tooth and nail and manage to stay up. And I would say that, you know, not to say anything against either West Ham or Villa, because they're both now exceptional teams that have that have turned it around and are going to finish above lots of teams that cost a lot more than them. But if you had to pick which team you felt embodied the tooth and nail fighting spirit more out of Sheffield United and one of those two sides, you'd have probably said Chris Wilder Sheffield United. So I think yeah, he's absolutely within his rights to have thought, you know what, the chips are down, but we can turn this around if we get the right investment. And when they didn't, and, and things got more and more sour up until this point, he just thought, you know what, I've done everything I can here. If I'm not going to be supported, I'm not going to help them out either. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, it's it's really damaging when you, as a club, rely on mentality when, you know, things don't go your way. Because, you know, suddenly that, that sheen, that idea of you guys as as a club that will always fight is complete, it gets lost. And mm. you can see it all the time, you know, anytime a manager has a really good home record, uh, for example, like, you know, Jose Mourinho had that famous um, home record 
at, at Chelsea that he didn't lose a home game in 100 Premier League matches or something ridiculous like that. As soon as you know, something like that gets broken, it's not uncommon for the next game to also be lost, even though, you know, it's been a 100 wins and one loss. No, 100 wins. 100 wins and draws and one loss. Just because that mindset is gone, you suddenly, like, you're, you're bleeding and you're, you're now vincible <laughs> um like instead of invincible um so definitely like i i think that sheffield season now regardless of who comes in is just going to go from bad to worse so from that point i think that it was definitely his decision to leave the club and not the clubs because you know there's no coming back from this now they're, they're gonna have a tough at least year ahead of them if not several yeah absolutely agreed um and I think it's interesting too to look at where the two clubs are looking post Chris, or, or where both Wilder and Sheffield United are looking at what's happening next for them. Chris Wilder is getting linked to Crystal Palace, another Premier League club that are going to stay up, which would ostensibly be, you know, at least in the table, a move up. And Celtic is the other one that, that are looking at him, uh, apparently. Meanwhile, Sheffield United are looking at Michael Appleton as the current favourite to take over, who's currently the Lincoln City manager. Uh, and he was Craig Shakespeare's assistant at Leicester, so he has a little bit of Premier League experience. Or Paul Heckingbottom and Jason Tindall, who are the interim manager or an assistant interim manager so it looks like one side is going up and one side is is going down a little bit which i which i think you know reflects what you were saying earlier about chris wilder's cv and how he's come out the, the other side yeah for sure uh, just, just a bit of a shame, really, to see this sort of. It, it's not the biggest fairy tale we've seen in the Premier League. It's not quite the level of like a Leicester type thing, but it was nice to sort of see see this pumpkin look like a carriage for one season. <laughs> they definitely captured the imagination. But there is one thing that I want to mention that I think has been overlooked by literally everyone. I haven't seen this anywhere, and it stuck with me because I remember it being such an outlandish claim at the time. Do you know who, which pundit predicted? this behavior from Sheffield, which there was one pundit, which everyone laughed at because he said Sheffield United were going to get relegated this season after finishing ninth. It's going to be someone who normally knows fuck all and it's going to be a stop clock is right twice a day kind of situation. Was it Garth Crooks? It was Michael Owen. (laughs) I mean, there you go. It doesn't get much better than that. And I remember, I mean, I just like, this is for me, this is setting the record straight, you know, this is definitely a, a big W in Michael Owen's correct answers column. Um, you know, you got to hand it to the guy. He did call it for good or for bad. It might have been a stop clock right twice a day scenario, but he could also have seen, you know, something within Sheffield like, you know, that unique gameplay that was going to get found out. And the man called it. You got to give him props. You absolutely do. You absolutely do. Uh, shall we move into useless trivia? Yes, let's. Uh, I've got quite a fun little piece of trivia for you uh, this week. I was looking at um, the uh, some of the more bizarre fees paid for players uh, over the, um, the the years, uh, you know, that um, have been given in lieu of uh, financial compensation. And um, I was quite surprised at some of the names on there, like John Barnes. Um, but one name which stuck out was Ian Wright, the Arsenal legend and England striker, who um, was once signed by Crystal Palace from non-league side Greenwich Borough for a set of weights, <laughs> um, which is pretty good business when you when you realise that he was then sold to the Gunners for £2.5 million. 
It's a, it's a pr- pretty expensive set of weights. Yeah, no, Wrighty had he was one of those um, one of those great players who had a really interesting route to professional football and ultimately becoming one of the the, the greatest sort of goal scorers Arsenal has ever seen um, and, and probably the, the the English football league as well. So you know the fact that at one point someone thought, yeah, I'll take some weights. Is uh, I think there was another player who got traded for like a couple of, a bag full of kits or something that I read once. Or like that was John Barnes, yeah. That was John yeah, Barnes. So, so, so there you go. It was just like great stuff. Um, mine is to do with penalties uh, this week. And it is that Manchester United are currently one penalty away from equaling Liverpool's Premier League penalties. Uh, Liverpool are on 165 Premier League all-time penalties. And Manchester United, of course, are on 164. Uh, Manchester United also hold the biggest rolling concentration of penalties in the Premier League history at the moment over the last two seasons, and this as yet completed one, uncompleted one with 35. So obviously both these two teams are going to be able on penalties. I'm sure both fans, and I know for a fact that both sets of fans accuse the other of getting loads and loads of penalties all the time and get there being some sort of massive conspiracy towards the other. Um, but it might interest you to know that neither United nor Liverpool are the most frequent recipient of Premier League penalties, despite what they might say. Um, Interesting. This honour actually goes to none other than Crystal Palace, who have received 71 penalties in 455 Premier League games, a rate of 0.156 penalties per game. There you go. Um, that that does indeed surprise me. Um, I, I definitely wouldn't have been the, the one that I guessed. I was expecting you to say it was someone like um, you know Chelsea or Arsenal or Tottenham or one of the other big, big clubs, but Palace, fair enough. I mean, now that I think about it, someone like... Um, Wilfred Zaha is the most fouled player in the Premier League this year. So I guess, you know, as a as a business model, if they often have like one key player who is not technical and gets in the box a lot and often gets fouled, I, you know, I, I can kind of see see why, but that is not a statistic that I would have guessed. <laughs> no, not, not at all, cause especially because like Crystal Palace currently that maybe you could sort of, you wouldn't be that surprised if you saw them in the top five of the league. Even top, you'd still be surprised. But they do have a lot of like very pacey, very tricky wingers. But Palace, over the entire history of the Premier League, obviously they weren't in the Premier League the whole time, but it's got, you know, penalties per game. But the fact that they're top there was really, really surprising to me. Um, So, yeah. Impressive. Well done, Crystal Palace. Keep duking those refs. (laughs) Uh, next, we have a little look at something that you wanted to talk about this week, something I think you're a little bit passionate about, uh, and that is whether we are acting like Sheffield United ourselves towards a different manager and underappreciating Pep Guardiola. Yeah, so I guess I just, um, this came up for me as an idea just because, you know, I was looking at um, some, just some like a lot of jokes get get made about Pep Guardiola as a manager, not least of which because of his behaviour for fantasy football managers, um, because he is renowned for rotating his squad all the time, messing people about. And, you know, I saw some sort of like joke thing which said like Pep Guardiola was as likely to incite world war than any of the, you know, um, like. Oh, yeah, uh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Uh, like world Top leaders. Five threats to world peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I think um, a lot, it got me to thinking, you know, and, and a lot is often said about Pep Guardiola about how the fact that he needs significant investment to, to win anything. And he's, you know, often, I'm sure everyone will have heard the phrase like fraudiola or, um, you know, something to that effect. And Bald- Baldiola is my favorite. Bald Yell is a good one. It's a good one. The man is bald. There's no getting around that. Um, and I just, I just 
wanted to break down a little bit of his career and talk about whether or not we agree. Do we think he's a fraud? Obviously, it's a big thing. And, you know, I don't think we uh, have the reputation to have the, the final say on, on uh, you know, his uh, perception as a manager. Speak but for yourself. I, I just thought, yeah, what, what do you think? Do we take him for granted? Is he a an incredible manager, the likes of which you see very rarely? Or is he, you know, a manager that buys his trophies? I think the answer to that question is, is kind of nuanced just because the <laughs> Pep, do, do we take Pep for granted? It's a very weird question because I think that actually a big part of the reason why so many people hate Pep Guardiola is because they feel that other people overrate him and vice versa. I think he's really, really polarizing and the nature of how he plays, uh, how he manages, really encourages people to sort of dig into their side. Obviously on one side, you've got the people who literally you would think you know, if Pep pissed on a football pitch, it would start growing grass and, and stuff like that. And then you've got people who, as you said, thinks he buys uh, just trophies. I think the real answer to it is neither, uh, whether he's a great manager or, or, or a terrible manager. Whether we take it for granted, I, I don't know if there's a way to answer it, because I think some people definitely do. I think some people also massively overhype him. I think that he's the best thing since sliced bread, where I think the real answer is he's a, a pretty good manager, but he's not the managerial messiah. Um I think you can look at a lot of his different clubs. Obviously, the main allegation against him in terms of managerial quality is purchasing power and how he's able to buy all these players. Incidentally, I don't think that means you're a bad manager. If you have a lot of money to spend or if you always spend money, I don't think it's in and of itself means you're a bad manager. I do think that it can influence how much... Or, 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 or it can sort of... It can show how much influence your tactics have relative to the personnel you have I think we can look at some managers like for example Chris Wilder that we just talked about and you can look at a team like that doing really well and there's no two ways about it the only reason that happened is because he's a really really good manager with someone like Pep Guardiola it's a little bit harder to identify all as his managerial genius and his tactical now because you know you assemble the best squad in the world you're probably going to get the best results in the world yeah, it's it's difficult just because he, you know, he started his managerial career at Barcelona. He didn't get that Mourinho Porto leading them to Champions League success moment. It's impossible to definitively say whether or not he could do it without the budget. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think the first port of call for any Mourinho stand when the argument comes across that he can't do it without cash is sort of going, well, you know, he did do it at Porto and there was reduced money there, and although Porto this is a different thing entirely, did have money relative to Portugal. He also won the Champions League with them, which is undoubtedly very, very impressive with their investment relative to the Real Madrid's of the Europe and Bayern Munich, etc., etc. So, you know, Mourinho has always had his feather in his cap, that feather in his cap, whereas Guardiola started off his managerial career at Barcelona B, then went to Barcelona, and not just any Barcelona, but a Barcelona that Messi had been playing for for four years already, and that Xavi Iniesta had been playing with for like six, seven years. So they were already like well set in place. I think that's the most memorable Guardiola team and definitely the team that took him to the apex of the managerial field playing the tiki-taka football but you know that was not so much his football as it was just football that he was there he he arrived and it was already happening because it was stuff that the Spanish national team were playing as well and I actually would disagree with that um you you, you know if if you look at tiki-taka is his brainchild well, I think that he revolutionised Barcelona when he arrived. You know, on his first day as manager, he decided to get rid of like pretty much the three biggest stars of the team, which were Ronaldinho, sold to Milan, Deco, sold to Chelsea, 
and uh, Samueletto, I think, also sold to Milan. Whether or not those were good decisions, you know, they all went on and had great careers at other clubs, so they clearly weren't done. He, you know, definitely initiated a restart of the dressing room. And while he still invested heavily and brought in significant players like Danny Elvis for 30 million, um, you know, he did, he did immediately change things at Barcelona. And I think you can't, you can't remove him from the dominance of 2010. I think that that is his cl- his club. That's his vision oh, oh, for of, a team. Of course not. And I, but but this is this is why I started the whole thing by saying nuance. I think it's really important to stress that when you say this wasn't Guardiola being amazing, it's not me saying like, oh, he was a terrible manager. It's just a good thing that Messi existed. Obviously, if he was completely useless, he would have been playing Lionel Messi in goal, and he, he, they wouldn't have won any games. But because because the, the players can't only manage themselves. But I do think that you know. In much the same way that you can look at someone like, um, you know, Mourinho now at Spurs is a really good example of people always saying, oh, could he do it at a place without infinite resources? Pepper's always had the good fortune. And and in a sense, his first edict to sort of say, let's get rid of Ronaldinho and Samueletto and I think Zambrotta as well also left is kind of evidence of the luxury he has there, being able to be at a club where you can afford to exile all those players at the same time. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how when Man United lost all of Evra and Vidic and Ferdinand uh, all in the same window, it caused a thing, a rift that they arguably still haven't really recovered from. Whereas Barcelona, because of how strong La Masia is and because of how deep their bench was, were able to recover from getting rid of players that good. And I don't think that means that Pep Guardiola is a bad manager, but I do think that it means he arrives at a club that was very, very stacked. Yeah, it's it's true. I, I would agree with that. I would, the reason I would disagree slightly, and again, I agree with you, it's all completely nuanced. The reason why I think it's different is that all of those players left Manchester United at the same time as Alex Ferguson left Manchester United, and that represented you know the end of an era. Mm-hmm. And I think that Pep Guardiola coming in in 2008 was completely different because he managed to turn it into the beginning of something new. And you know, it could well have been the end of an era because you know people like um Lillian Turan retired that year so it's not like um you know it's it's not like it was a bunch of young players ready to succeed he yeah, a lot of those players were getting up there like Ronaldinho he changed the narrative um and i think that you have to give him at least some credit for that yeah and i think a lot of managers and what we're seeing at barcelona right now is you know managers holding on to the wrong players for too long and maybe failing to to lose the identity and rebuild. So I think, yeah, credit for that 100%. But I also think, you know, Xavi and Iniesta, for example, even if you take Messi out of the equation, which is just an insane thought, but even if you take Messi out of the equation, having Iniesta dominated the midfield for Barcelona and internationally for like five years, obviously, yes, Pep Guardiola was part of why Barcelona was good. But even when he wasn't there, that midfield dominated everyone else on the international stage so I don't think it's wholly him either see it's interesting because I actually think that his international influence is maybe the strongest argument you could make for how he is a special special manager the reason I say that is because when I think of like there's the two most dominant international teams of the last 20 years we've talked about it before I think maybe even on this podcast um, you know, you think of Spain 2010 and you think of Germany 2014. These play, these these teams dominated their World Cups. Mm-hmm. And I think that Pep Guardiola is unique in the influence that he had internationally on those sides. Yes, you can claim that 
you know, he he inherited a, a great team and Barcelona was already the the essence of Spain, but I think Pep Guardiola was responsible for the height of Ticketaka, which saw Barcelona win Champions Leagues and which saw Spain dominate that World Cup in 2010. I think he had um, seven of the starting 11 players were from Barcelona. And then in, in Germany as well, you can see the influence that his tactics had on that Germany 2014 side. They went into the World Cup with only two strikers. And they often adopted a false nine using Mario Goetze. Where was Mario Goetze? You guessed it. He'd just signed for Bayern Munich the year before and was operating in that same role there. Um, you know, they, they won that year, not just because of the strength of their individual players, but also for their team play. They were really dynamic. They passed the ball a lot. They embodied, as a national side, the same um, ideals that Pep Guardiola's Bayern Munich embodied. And that is an influence that transcends his club. And I think that, for me, that's why I would be willing to consider the fact that he is maybe the best manager in the world, maybe the best manager that we've seen in the last 30 years. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point you've made there. Um, I think the international influence, definitely, I, I agree with what you just said there about that being one of the strongest cases from being a, a very elite manager. I do think perhaps that you know, as impressive as it is, something like Mario Goethe becoming a, a false nine, it's maybe stripping away a little bit of responsibility from, you know, the Joachim Loves and the, and the Vincente Del Bosques and, and not attributing enough, you know, it's not like they were just there having to text Pep Guardiola before announcing their lineups and saying, oh, what was it you did again? Uh, I think that he definitely has some good ideas, but I also think that, you know, just having good ideas doesn't necessarily make you elite. You've also got to be able to implement them. And I think for me, I will always be slightly more impressed by people who are able to make it work with sort of make a team that's great in the sum of its parts. And I think you can see at Manchester City, for example, a little bit of an inability for Pep to do this, not in that Man City haven't been extremely successful, but the amount of players that have sort of been thrown onto the recycling heap. I mean, the amount of centre-backs they've had to buy before they've settled on this winning partnership. They had to buy two keepers before they managed to figure out the one that worked out. They've had to go through all these different iterations of players and figure stuff out. And there are still players coming in, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Rodri coming in for £60 million, and it looks like it's probably not really working out with him, so I'm sure we'll see another defensive midfielder come in soon. Or John Stones, it's now worked out for him, but Laporte's sort of not really getting... Somewhere. So all these players... Pep has the luxury of being able to buy these players, buy these players, and doesn't have to, and again, he may well be able to, he's just never had to, make it work. He can just go, well, this defender doesn't play like I want to off the rip, I'm just going to spend another 60 million. Um, and I do think also with Pep, a lot of these clubs he's gone to, he has done well, and at times he's also been able to implement really interesting new ideas. But again, I think that's a luxury that's afforded when you come somewhere that has already done really well. He joined, obviously, a Barcelona side that had the three best players in the world at the time. He joined a Bayern Munich side that had just won the treble. He joined a Man City side that had just, you know, the two years prior not only won the league, but also become the fastest club in Premier League history to score 100 competitive goals in a season. So this wasn't exactly like, for example, Jurgen Klopp joining uh, that Liverpool side that hadn't seen success in ages, or, or someone else, or Mauricio Pochettino coming to Spurs and, and doing something like that who were sort of having to build something from the ground up. Pep was coming to these places that were really, really successful. When he came in, they already had players like Kevin De Bruyne was already playing for Manchester City. Sergio Aguero was already playing. Raheem Sterling, Fernandinho, they were already playing there. So he had such a great template to work upon. So of course he could afford to be a little bit more adventurous. And on top of that, since he's been there, he spent £848 million. So 
I'm, I'm not trying to strip everything away from him, but I'm also saying I think he has the ability to be a little bit creative and be a little bit adventurous because he has unlimited resources and he gets a start at, like, level 10. Yeah, very true. Um, and obviously, you know, that can't be underestimated, the, the ability to, you know, spend that much money, which is just ludicrous. I remember, you know, one time I think he had, he had he spent more on his defence budget than, you know, like 20 different countries. Um, but I, I just yeah. feel like there's a distinction that needs to be made between managers that can create things that are greater than the sum of their parts and managers that can have serious lasting achievements in football and i i would put guardiola in the second of those categories and not the first so i I agree with you there but i do think that you know you can't while it might be taking away from whackham low and del bosque just the the way that like the the pattern of international football shifted and it exactly mirrors his behaviour. So, you know, Pep Guardiola left Barcelona in 2012. Um, you know, Spain won the, the World Cup in 2010. The Euros in 2012 have since not looked anywhere near winning anything. And immediately he moves to Germany. Germany immediately embody his ideas nationally and then win a World Cup again in a dominant way. I think that's too much of a coincidence to, to pass up. I think um, the other part as well that that distinguishes him from Jose Mourinho in my mind is that he seems to leave clubs on good terms. He seems to have a good balance between, you know, giving a chance to youth and, you know, playing more experienced players. He's never afraid to challenge, like, like, you know, the the norm. Um, And I think the fact that he has gone through all of these players, yes, indicates his, like, privilege as a manager to be able to have such a big budget but also shows how how capable he is to adapt tactically um you know just just the season alone we've talked about how he's managed to find two or three different new ideas for how his side can continue to dominate you know with the likes of like mm-hmm. Ferran Torres at false nine or Ilke Gundogan coming in for for Kevin De Bruyne compare that to Jurgen Klopp who has been unable to do anything beyond his one good idea which saw than win the Premier League last year, which is his his kind of ideology as a manager. I would say that Pep Guardiola is maybe stronger in his capacity to take players at face value, read their attributes, and maybe you know you can say that he he just picks the players which have his attributes. But he's definitely got a more flexible managerial style than someone like Jurgen Klopp, and that is only a strength tactically. You know, it, it's interesting that you mentioned Jose Mourinho there and Jurgen Klopp in, in terms of what Guardiola can do that they can't. But I think I, I definitely look to something that they both can do that Pep Guardiola can't. Uh, and that win, Jose, win the Champions League. <laughs> well, exactly. Jose Mourinho winning the Champions League at more than just his more than just one club, and you know Jurgen Klopp winning the Champions League with Liverpool. Pep Guardiola won the Champions League, of course, with Barcelona. But since he stopped managing Messi, he hasn't been able to win one. He couldn't win one with Bayern Munich, despite the fact that they were just treble winners when he came in and replaced Jupp Heynckes. And he still hasn't been able to win one with Man City. Not only has he not been able to win the Champions League with Man City, he hasn't been able to get past the quarter finals once so City have got about as far as they've got less far than Liverpool even Spurs have done more than them in the Champions League in recent years and Spurs have spent you know no certainly nowhere near 848 million they've probably spent something like 84 quid so I I just I think it's difficult to say he's this managerial messiah when there's that one big thing that he's kept trying to do and kept trying to do and even at times like now when the league is kind of almost wrapped up he maybe they'll go ahead and win it this season 
and that would definitely go some way to changing my mind about him and it would I think you know it's an accolade it's a huge accolade winning it for the first time with City so it would obviously change everyone's mind to some degree but I just think the fact that that continues to elude them and it's something that even now when they look so good people always talk about City in the Champions League kind of cautiously when they lost to Man United last week everyone was sort of going well this is the kind of collapse City can have we'll be expecting to see this later in Europe and this is something we're used to City, City doing is that a team that's really, truly supreme? If he's been able to spend all this money and break all these records for the most amount of money spent, but he can't make it work in Europe? Um, yeah, okay, look, so I'd say two things to that. Two two ideas to that. One is, you know, we talked about the, the unbelievable amount of money that he spends on his teams. We don't know, for example, at City, who sanctions the signings. In the same way that Chris Wilder, we, we don't know if he decided on Rian Brewster. We don't know how much influence Pep Guardiola has on Man City's transfer signings. Uh, and uh, I, 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 not, not to contradict you, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we do. I, the whole point of the Chiki Bagheristain, Pep Guardiola like hierarchy, that's why he was brought in, was so that he could design the club per his blueprint. And most of the players that come in, which is why we've seen so much turnover so rapidly, is because players will come in, he'll disagree that they're correct for the system, and then someone, that was why we saw players like Nathan Ake and Ruben Diaz come in the same window when they already had John Stones and Amirik Laporta who'd come in under him. Yeah, so I think what I'm trying to say is like, I wouldn't be surprised if, for example, Ruben Diaz is the signing that he wanted, and then the club also said, oh, and there's this guy, Nathan Ake, that is a great centre-back. He's going. Well, I'm going to pick him up as well. And like, oh, he maybe yeah, only yeah, wanted... I, see, I, I see what you mean. Uh, yeah, he maybe only wanted one of those signings. He got both. And sure. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the time there's kind of conflicting ideas because the City hierarchy is saying, like, we're going to sign these players. And Pep Guardiola is going, okay, but I actually want these players. And City go, great, we'll just take the lot. Um, That's you know, very that, possible. That's that very, very much possible. would fit into my idea. The second thing is, I also feel like... Um, you know, there's a good chance that the club just has different priorities. I wouldn't be surprised if City, because of all of the criticism they get for not having as much domestic history, not being on the same playing field as their, you know, home rivals, Manchester United. I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if, you know, in in the boardroom, they were saying, we don't care about Europe nearly as much as we care about the Premier League. We want to be a powerhouse domestically. Focus on that. And I think that obviously that wouldn't dismiss his his lack of success with City in, in that competition because mm-hmm. he has such incredible squads at his disposal. But I wouldn't be surprised if, if that hasn't been what the club have really, really wanted, to be honest. Uh, again, again, it absolutely might be. But I think that what's really, really crucial there is not an either or. Especially if you're a club with City's resources, it it absolutely is not a Premier League or Champions League. Plenty of clubs across Europe have won the double or the treble, and and City. I I don't see that they haven't been trying in these knockout matches. Maybe there is less of a club culture to go for it, but at the same time, so many players have come out. Aguero is the one that always springs to my mind when he came out like five years ago and said he wasn't going to leave City until he won a Champions League, um, and he's still there. <laughs> he's but, still still trying. But um, but yeah, no, maybe that's the case. I'd be surprised if, especially because they've won it like four times in the last 
eight years or something like that if they decided they didn't also want to try and win the Champions League, especially with this sort of new rivalry that's sprung up with with Liverpool, where Liverpool have won very recently, and obviously the rivalry they had before, you know, coming into it with Man United, who their big claim to fame is all the Champions Leagues they've won. I'd be very surprised if City weren't also massively prioritising that. I think for them, it's like, they're like, them and PSG are the two ones that hunger for it the most at the moment. Yeah, and, um, you know, as, as I kind of touched on, like, this isn't meant to absolve him of his... Of his um, deficiencies more just to maybe add a couple more layers to the the argument um mm-hmm. i do have a question for you and i'm interested to I mean, this is going to take us into a different um argument again um is Lionel messi the best player in the world that that is so not something we have time for at like an hour <laughs> no no no, I, no no just just we, hear me out just yes or no yes he hasn't won a world cup yeah so george best Wait, never won a world okay. cup Great, Pep Guardiola's never won the Champions League with, with Man City. Yeah, but that's that's a different equivalence. Obviously, as a manager... Obviously, it's a, a pl- different equivalence. But the point I'm making is that people that don't like a player or a manager are always going to find something as like a failing of theirs. You can't win literally everything. The same way that... like. We we you had can, a go. You at... can though. The greatest managers do is my point. You know, you you you. Alex Ferguson has won everything. Arrigo Saki won everything. Uh, you know, Bill Shankly won everything. Jurgen Klopp at this point has won everything. Pep Guardiola hasn't done it all with City, and I think in the face of the man again. As I said, if they now go on and win the Champions League, very different conversation. If they win the the quadruple, very different conversation. But I think with Pep Guardiola, he gets a lot of criticism. Because I, I see it as really, really similar to when a player comes over and they've got a really big price tag. They didn't ask for that price tag. And maybe you, there's some truth to what you say about Pep not getting all of these signings. So maybe it's not entirely him. But you're always going to get some criticism when there's this massive price tag surrounding you. And I think the fact that he's got all this money coming in, it's the Premier League team that's put more money into their team than ever before by a huge margin. And he hasn't been able to do, at the bare minimum, whatever, what like five different Premier League teams have done, suggests to me that he's not as good as some people think he is. That's true. And, you know, I, I definitely don't want to try. I'm not trying to settle a debate or anything. I'm just trying to have one, if that makes sense. I'm not out here, like, arguing that he is the best manager ever. I'm saying that the more I did research on him, the more I could see reasons why you might think that. But, you know, even you want to talk about Sir Alex Ferguson, we talked about in a previous episode, uh, episode 27 for everyone listening, um, how he, you know, seriously, significantly damaged Manchester United when he left. Is yeah. we both agreed that that was very much the case. Absolutely, it, but but just so, he did so something can, bad at hear, the end. Hear me out. Just, just, so is he still an incredible manager despite that failing? Yes. Yeah, of course. So the, if, the if, argument if, if, if I scored 30 is, goals suggest- sent off in the final game of the season, I've still had a great year. So what I'm suggesting is that you know no manager is perfect because there are so many different moving pieces to any club, and. I don't think that one one a failure to do one thing can exclude you from the history books. Um, so I definitely accept it as maybe a ceiling of his, a shortcoming, something that shows that he is not this infallible god that, as you kind of talked about, some people think of him as. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that it necessarily takes him out of, of the argument for who is the best manager in the world at the moment. No, I don't think so either. But I think that's the that's the key, that's the core issue with with this conversation because I think there's a there's a way that Pep Guardiola gets talked about 
that you don't really see about any other manager. And I think a lot of people would feel the same way as I've sort of talked about Pep here, about, for example, Jurgen Klopp, if Jurgen Klopp was always hailed as this sort of like managerial genius and people sort of worshipped the ground he walked on and went, oh, Jurgen, Jurgen, no one ever does it like him. People sort of go, Jurgen Klopp's a really, really good manager. And similarly, someone like Carlo Ancelotti, people go, like, he's a really, really good manager. And I think most people just go, yeah, yeah, he is. And I think if people just said that about Pep, people go, yeah, yeah, he is. I think the whole point of it, and this is sort of what I started with, why it's such a nuanced argument, do we take Pep for granted? I think some people do. I think some people so don't on the other end of the spectrum that it kind of balances out. Some people so overstate, you know, you would think he was the best person, manager or player or anything to ever influence the game of football. Slash human, <laughs> slash genius, yeah. Well, no, 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 but seriously, like people talk about Pep reinventing football and like ever since he's been in the Premier League, people will, anytime someone has a passage of play, it could be like a, a West Ham side has a really good like passage of play. Some pundit will go, oh, we didn't see this before Pep Guardiola came in. And I'm just like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah it's true I completely agree like you know inspiration comes from so many different places we've talked about how Marcelo Bielsa really you know set the you know influence Pep Guardiola in becoming the manager that he is and you know no like ideas don't come from out of thin air they're, they're always a precedence and you know for example this whole three at the back this expansive gameplay that that got taken in not by Pep Guardiola but by Antonio Conte um, and he popularised that in the Premier League. And, and that then mm. became England's formation. So, yeah, you know, it's it's always so much more nuanced than, you know, one manager having this this unbelievable influence. But I do think that there are arguments on both sides. Um, I think that it's an interesting thing to to talk about. And I also think that we've got quite a nice place where we can have this argument and I can, you know, push hard on, you know, bringing to you the ideas that maybe he is, this this amazing manager and ahead of you know the rest of the field in terms of best in the world but at the same time i don't think anyone on this podcast thinks that we you know wax lyrical over him every week i think if anything we we have more uh idolizing of um, sam allardyce than we do pep um on a weekly (laughs) basis and and marcelo bielsa and and marcelo bielsa for sure um the hipster's choice um, but uh, definitely, you know, I think um, I don't know where I stand on it. I think that he's a good manager. Is he the best? We will we will find out probably the end of his career. Um, but he is definitely someone that you need to see the whole picture of. And I think that's the main thing behind my question of do we take him for granted? You got to recognise that, as you kind of quite aptly described, some people think that he's God's gift of football, which he probably isn't. Other people think that he's a fraud, which he definitely isn't. And he definitely exists somewhere in in the middle. Yeah, and I think the existence of those sides have like, it, it kind of, everyone just digs in. Yeah, very true. Um, but yeah, not to get tied down for too long. Um, let's move on and let's talk about guessing game. Let us indeed. Uh, and I think that you've been kind of cheeky trying to slip this one past me. <laughs> um, you've gone for a couple of players that he played with at club level at like such a I actually also think that Gerard Piquet this is not the first time he's slipped into a guessing game just because of his very brief stint at Man United perhaps um, yep. he actually obviously the was... first clue kind of, I kind of knew who this was when you gave me the first clue because that was it could only be a handful of players um, do, do you want to read out your clues again before I have my guess 
Yeah, sure thing. Um, so he uh, in 2014, he became the first Premier League player to reach over 10 million followers on Twitter. He has the most goals for one Premier League club of any player in the history of the Premier League. Um, and he has played with the likes of Gerard Piquet, Theo Walcott, Robin Van Persie and Tim Howard, all at club level. Well, quite an impressive list of players that have been all over, given that the player I think this is only played at two clubs himself. or Oh no, sorry, only played at two Premier League clubs himself. Uh, this would be Wayne Rooney? It is indeed Wayne Rooney, yeah. There you go. That, I've got to slightly say that first clue, the, the first clue I, when you said most goals for Premier League side, I was like, hmm, so it's only really possibly going to be like Wayne Rooney, Alan Shearer, Thierry Henry, one of these players. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually, I was really confident, especially after you said that it was cheeky to try and sneak in past you. I was really trying to push you towards um, Thierry Henry. Towards Henry. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, to be fair, I think it did. He did play with PK, he did play with Theo, he did play with RVP. I could see, I don't know if he did, maybe he did, but could have played with Tim Howard at some point in the MLS. I could have seen that one. Well, yeah, so I thought that was why I thought Tim Howard would be a good one because he actually played, um, he was at Manchester United for a number of years. Um, but I thought that you would think Thierry Henry and then you think, yeah, I reckon Tim Howard might have overlapped with him in the MLS. Um but I'm impressed that your mind went straight to uh, to the Waz. It, it, it was literally just the first three that crossed my mind. And obviously Wayne Rooney is, is number two. So if it was most goals for a single club, it, Rooney would be ahead of Henri, which is why, why I went there. But like he's played for Everton as well, twice. Um, so I was hoping that maybe that would throw you off. And the whole like for one Premier League club, you think, well, Thierry Henry's only played for one Premier League club. Um, but Not well so. Played. Not so indeed. Uh, yeah, to you go the points. Shall we move into settling the score then and wrap us up? Yes, let's um, so, see if I can uh, regain some honour, which I don't think I probably can. We started off with Newcastle versus Aston Villa, which was 1-1. I had guessed 1-0 and you had guessed 2-0, so I get the point there. Uh, I'll get the point for Leeds, Chelsea and... Uh, no points for Crystal Palace versus West Brom because you guessed the score correctly, which is really annoying because I guessed nil-nil and it was 1-0, which is what you guessed. It's like the third <laughs> time the Palace have done this to me this season. <laughs> uh, you know, I think um, I really knew that it was going to be a 94th minute winner. Um, I did, maybe didn't say it on air, but it was definitely uh, something I thought of at the time. They were going to win at the <laughs> la- very last minute. Uh, Everton Burnley was uh, 2-1 to Burnley I guessed 2-1 to Everton and you guessed 1-0 to Everton so we were both the same amount of goals away there so we will share the points Uh, and then I go on a bit of a rampage Rupert actually um, starting with a correct prediction for Fulham Manchester City at 3-0 and then correcter answers than you for all of Southampton Brighton Leicester Sheffield United Arsenal Spurs Man United West Ham and Wolves Liverpool so you picked up three points Early doors this week in Crystal Palace West Brom, but then all of the other points go to me, which results in a ten-three final score to me. That's uh, that's that's one of the more one-sided uh, results we've had, isn't it? One of the more one-sided ones indeed. Well, that about wraps us up for this week, Rupert. Great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much. Uh, we will be doing our predictions for next week off air, so that we can um, keep it crisp for you guys. Uh, Cam, lovely to talk to you and I will speak to you next week. Cheers. Cheers for listening, guys. Bye.
Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshul.